Well, it's an interesting psychological question as to how well you really do know your own mind. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Good Is In The Details. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, and this episode is all about the crossroads between philosophy and science. We're talking CRISPR, we're talking designer babies, we're talking bioethics, and philosophy of mind. If you have any questions about this episode, feel free to tweet me at gdolsky or get in touch with me on Instagram. That's at gdol10. And here's the interview. Joining me today, guest hosting is writer, producer, gadfly, Jacob Weber. Ahoy. Ahoy. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? We're talking genetic engineering today. We're at Cal Poly Pomona. Are you looking for me to challenge you on that? (laughs) We are at Cal Poly Pomona. It was a lovely drive. I mean, it took us some time to find parking, but I blame you. I'll I'll take the blame, if need be. All right. And we are chatting today with Professor of Philosophy at Cal Poly Pomona. His specialty is perception and cognitive science. He is the director of Science, Technology, and Society program, Professor Peter Ross. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about philosophy of science. What is something that philosophy offers science? Yeah, philosophy often takes a particular kind of topic like religion or art or the mind and it looks at how we know anything about it. So that's called in the fancy language epistemology and it talks about the nature of the thing that it is, which in the fancy language is metaphysics. So that's what philosophy does with science. It basically talks about science's uh, methodology, which is somehow related to the ordinary methodology of figuring out how the world works in informal ways. You know, you can also talk in philosophy of science about the nature of theoretical objects and such because oftentimes they're too small to be able to perceive and that kind of thing. What would you say in the history of mankind has been maybe one of the biggest changes or let's say something we have learned in science that has made us reorient our philosophical view of let's say humanity or who we are you think of a big yeah it's a great question i think there there are lots of examples of that one that is particularly intriguing to me is when people discovered how old the earth is because it had been thought that the earth was about as old as the bible said it was which is something like at this point six thousand years old 5960 right something like and they're yeah. different numbers but they're all pretty small yeah and then with geological discoveries that put it in the billions this is like taking a fairly shallow pool and just knocking the bottom out of it so that i mean everything gets reoriented in terms of what could have happened in that period of time for example bill bryson talks about it in his brief history of Nearly everything. I don't know. Mm. I forgot what it's called. But yeah, that was a discovery mid-1800s when we started That's getting right. interested in geological experimentation. Right. And it made evolution, Darwin's theory, more plausible because it gave just tremendously more time for evolutionary developments to take place. That's really interesting. I mean, when I'm thinking about your class, the science, technology, and society, this is a perfect mm-hmm. example of science challenging a societal structure because if we are saying that the earth is much older or Mm -hmm. you know in the billions then that reorients the way in which we see the significance of ourselves which is based in a lot of religious teachings too yes the conflict between science and religion is of course a a classic one Mm -hmm. where religion is tended to have to sort of absorb 
the changes and modify. So that taking the real classic example, Earth not to be the center of the universe is something that just had to be absorbed by the religious worldview. And there's going to be more of that, no doubt, yeah. uh, as time moves along, especially with respect to biology and neuroscience. But for example, with biotechnology, the question as to how much we can morally change the human genome is a big issue that would run into religious opposition. And also, you know, generally speaking, even non-religious people might feel that there's something really weird about that. Where are we going with genetic engineering? What are some of the problems with it? What is? What are also some of the great things about it? In the last five years, there's been the development of a kind of gene editing technique called CRISPR-Cas9, which has been just revolutionary because it is more precise, it's cheaper, it's readily usable. Most bio labs that have access to CRISPR-Cas9. It's readily accessible and it's extremely powerful. With any powerful technology, you've got, especially at the beginning, a lot of promise for good. Mm-hmm. Because there are lots of genetic illnesses that, if they have to do with the mutation in a particular place in a gene, could be really improved by <clears throat> this kind of technology. It's a just, I don't know if you mentioned this, but just mm-hmm. for the general listener, yeah. the CRISPR is a gene editing gun, right? Or a, it's a, there's a vehicle that delivers the edited gene into the sequence somehow? Yeah, so it... It's composed of two different parts. The CRISPR part is RNA, which acts as a target for a part of creature's genome. So any biological creature. It could be a plant or a mouse or a human being. And it affects Um, the RNA, the the, ribonucleic acid. Right. So it acts as a reader because it's paired up with the information on the DNA. So what it can do is with the RNA's pattern of nucleotides, which are the the component parts of the RNA or DNA, it can precisely read a pattern in the DNA. So if what you wanted to do is look for a particular sequence in the DNA, you could find that by sequencing an RNA and then just letting it identify that. So that's one part. And then the other part is a, a protein cutter, essentially the Cas9 part. Initially, this is discovered that viruses had this sort of a capability in connection with bacteria, Mm. um, and that it was something that could be universally used as a technique. Mm -hmm. So initially, the idea would be that you take the targeting mechanism of the RNA, and then with a cutter, you can tell the cutter exactly where to cut to either make a gene just get knocked out, essentially, or to replace a gene or something like that. More recently, I guess they developed more than just cutting capabilities for the proteins. So you can cut or you can turn the cutting off and you can do all other things, like just switch a nucleotide with another nucleotide. That's all you have to do in order to make someone who has a disease, in fact, better. So yeah, this is a gene editing technique which is relatively recent. There have been gene editing techniques around for a while, but this one is just much more accurate, more powerful, and it's, it's fairly cheap. So it's not something that only national laboratories or something have. There are biohacker groups around the country. There's one in Brooklyn where you can take classes And just like a normal school, you take some intro classes and then you take some higher level ones. The intro classes have you sort of working with 
the equipment and learning how to do things. And you can learn how to use CRISPR, right? So this would just be ordinary great. people. You Brave new world. Yeah. yeah. Hobbyists. It's a really amazingly positioned technology to make a lot of changes. I mean, it's, it's good in that it can make some good changes, but it's also so readily accessible that you can imagine that all kinds of things might come of it. You know, it, the fact that you said Brave New World interests me because it seems to me that in any fiction or films that they have a tendency to describe what we're talking about in a negative light. It's a warning. And I think it starts from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, mm. that there's this warning of what you were doing. It's and your original science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it was a contest, right? She won a contest, I think. Is that true? I think so. I I know that it was always referred to as the Georgia Tech uh, literature professor, father of a friend of mine, used to lecture me on Saturday mornings when I woke up stoned at my friend's house on the history of science fiction literature. And he always identified that as the, the central anxiety of all science fiction literature is man's tools getting out of control. Yeah. And that right. is the original story that depicts yeah. that. That's perfect. I mean, when I think about any films that are dealing with well, that's interesting that you said tools because I was thinking about trying to shape mankind, that there mm-hmm. are all of these warnings. Mm-hmm. And so there's a couple ways of looking at this. Is our reluctance about genetic engineering because we've been so heavily influenced by that? Are the writers correct? Or is every mm-hmm. scientist who ever watches a film like Jurassic Park and they're just thinking, my God, not again, you know, because they're always mm-hmm. portrayed as the evil ones who just want to control humanity it seems like in any science fiction. Well, it was, I Even mean, Gattaca, to be fair mm-hmm. in Jurassic Park, it was the developer, it was the money man, <laughs> the, the visionary, the, the carnival barker character who was sort of depicted as really being the abuser. The scientists are always depicted as these, like, semi-emasculated hopalongs that okay. do the bidding of these <laughs> maniacal, but, yeah. but to be fair, sorry, you asked a legitimate question, I'm going to shut up. No, no. The coffee just kicked no, in. I think, I think that's what's interesting is that our reluctance to pursue genetic engineering and then what you're talking about with CRISPR, making it sound so easy and available, mm-hmm. would it ever get to the point where it's so important for one's health that we treat it almost the way that we treat vaccinations now, that it would be wrong not to? Yeah. In fact, it's probably quickly going to become that way. It's so new that there, there's still clinical trials and so forth to determine that this is safe. But there are, I think, widely accepted uses of uh, this CRISPR technology, this uh, gene editing technology, for particular situations. So when you hear in the news about when there's a a real problem, it generally either has to do with so-called heritable genetic uh, editing. That means editing genes in the gametes, so eggs and sperm, that then continue the whatever changes are made into further generations. So that kind of thing, in part because we just don't really know what's going to happen long term, something like that. So the risks are really great. The other area where it's controversial has to do with enhancement. So not just treatment, but rather making people bigger, better, stronger. Why was there such a backlash against the scientists in Beijing or yeah. uh, who edited the... Yeah, so that's Dr. Her Yanhui. The backlash there was precisely that what he was doing was germline editing. That is editing to material that would then be heritable by future generations. And generally speaking, within the scientific community... 
there had been a consensus that that kind of move. Oh, would, sorry. Let's define what it what what it was just for the listener. The, yeah. Uh, he edited. Oh, what he actually did. What he did. Yeah. About yeah, the, the child details, of an HIV positive woman to help. Well, there were twins, and he made an edit to embryos in order to make it less likely or to prevent them from getting HIV infection. The embryos that were implanted in right, inside. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that on the face of it seems like a really good thing, right? Because if the twins were vulnerable to getting HIV infection, then what? Dr. Herr did supposedly would make that not happen. The problems with what he did in particular were, first of all, the consensus had been that if you're going to do that kind of thing, you have to make a really strong case for it. There's got to be no other way of doing what you want to do. And apparently in this case, there were other ways of dealing with HIV infection in connection with the twins. And you have to have informed consent that's uh, really solid. And it sounds like he was pretty slapdash about the informed consent. So can we talk a little bit about enhancement? You mentioned that mm. because one of the things that I think is interesting is that if your baseline is health and then there's a deficiency, there doesn't seem to be any problem with bringing the deficiency up to that baseline of health. Right. But let's say if your baseline is health and you want to go over it. Right. Then there's controversy about that. That would be the enhancement stuff. It's a medically unnecessary right. thing. So what are some of the possibilities with enhancement so that people can get a sense of what do we mean by that? And then I'm kind of interested in what your point of view is on it. Like, is it wrong? Yeah. Well, so that so is So what a, are some examples of enhancement first? Examples of enhancement could include, for example, correcting colorblindness. Okay. I mean, what that does is show you that the difference between enhancement and treatment is a little bit hazier than you might think because whether colorblindness is really an illness or just a different way of seeing or something is an interesting question. But, you know, I mean, I guess the general idea would be having full color vision is good. So, you know, maybe that isn't an enhancement. Maybe that's a treatment. Dwarfism can be treated, apparently, so that with human growth hormone, people that would be uh, abnormally short would be able to have normal height mm -hmm. but then if you decide to take someone of normal height or someone who's got genes for that and then make them taller so that they can play basketball or something that would be considered an enhancement right See, and that's what i think is that wrong yeah because what if you're saying if you want the i mean taller people get paid better right better jobs get more respect from right. what I've heard. <laughs> That's what, what I've heard. heard. <laughs> so, wouldn't, so is there something so wrong if a parent is saying, look, I've got the money to pay for this. I want my right. child to have the best shot, so make them taller, even though they are at a baseline right. of health. Yeah. Is that problematic? That does seem problematic, and in part it's because of the economic angle, which is apparently it may well be expensive not that the CRISPR technology is all that expensive, but there are going to be patents for doing particular kinds of things. And when they can do something, like make someone taller, then the paying for that may not be covered by insurance. It may actually be a fair amount of money. It's going to help the advantaged and not help the disadvantaged, presumably, right? So the inequalities that we have are going to be perhaps worsened if, in fact, we 
are really open to enhancements in these particular ways. How is that different than folks with the education and the resources to feed their kids a more balanced or nutritious diet, get them access to coaches or, right. you know, all the things that would essentially make these things naturally develop in the right. growing child. Yeah. Well, there are unfair advantages. There's no question. This would just be something more and really keyed to having more money. And this, when they're blatant like that, that it seems to be more objectionable. Because they're so effective and Well, direct. they're effective and so inaccessible yeah. to majority of people. We can't presume that people will be hacking this technology and trying to work around a patent to... Well, that's the good question, whether or not the, that was easily hackable. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm not sure. In order to even hack, you probably have to have enough resources to get yourself in a position to do the hacking. So the general tendency of a gap between affluent and less affluent and so forth, advantaged and disadvantaged, would still sort of be in, in play. One interesting point is that because we don't know the basis for intelligence, it's not really going to necessarily help with that because we don't know what genes are going to be. I mean, that would be the most dangerous kind of thing to mess around with, with the genes that might be associated with intelligence because it's, I gather, much clearer what you could do to decrease someone's intelligence than to actually increase it. Traditional hammer to the head. Yeah, no, there's that the technique. And, yeah. Right. What about something like sex selection that seems less mm-hmm. controversial but is a type of choosing the parent, kind of choosing the, the child as mm-hmm. opposed to it just being a surprise? Mm-hmm. Is sex selection considered a type of, not enhancement exactly, but yeah. some kind of where we're using science to work around nature, I guess? Yeah, there's this general idea of uh, designer babies. and. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what that means because it seems to run a gamut from choosing eye color, which, you know, on the face of it isn't that big of a deal, I guess, as far as designing goes, to perhaps being taller, which could be done. Being smarter would be part of that package, but we don't really know how to do that so well. I was reading part of the book you had recommended. It was, I think it was called Redesigning Our Grandchildren. The author's last name is Bess. One of the things is that it was kind of an interesting thought experiment Mm -hmm. is that what if we could get rid of evil what if Mm. evil is really an expression a physical trait and what if Mm. we could get rid of that like i don't know you go in for the test and you know your doctor says i'm sorry but your baby is is evil evil. yeah (laughs) but but if we were to look at what what constitutes evil would be in part like a lack of empathy like there are locations in the brain Uh, where we could take a look at it and then what we are calling evil might actually be an expression of a physical trait in the brain or a lack of yes a certain kind of activity in the brain because then we're not talking about physical we're not talking about health in that way we're not talking about physical traits we're talking about altering mental states in well, the future. Yeah, the more you get into the mental, the, probably the, the harder it's going to be to pull off uh-huh. uh, genetically. Just like the intelligence thing. Just like the intelligence right. thing, exactly. And, I mean, when thinking about how you could get rid of genetic diseases, right? I mean, it's so powerful, it seems like, well, what, we should do it right now. I mean, come on, and inheritably. So that sickle cell disease involves having a gene that is just very slightly off with a mutation, that if you were to change that in a child, that would cure them 
right? If you successfully an enigma child that was born that was born with uh, mutation, right? That causes sickle cell. So that seems like it's unproblematically something. Well, let's just you know sign me up. Yeah, right? except for you don't know what would happen afterwards necessarily. I mean, yeah. presumably the the effects would be a hundred percent positive. Presumably, but of yeah. course, you know. In promise, things are much neater than yeah. they actually end up being in practice. It's going, that kind of research is developing so that it's clear when trying to make correction and edit, there aren't off-target edits, there aren't mistakes that are made at the same time, which then have results that are unknown. Eventually, that will probably be something that's usable. And then the next step is to think, well, no one wants sickle cell disease, we can just eradicate it. It can be gone. And that would be then a move to make a heritable edit so that no one inherits this illness. But because it's, I gather, more complicated when thinking about these sorts of edits in terms of their risks over generations, as opposed to just the risks within the context of a given life, that you know, they're multi-generational benefits, there's no question, but they're also multi-generational risks that if we don't have a full grasp of them, we're walking into, mm. you know, really problematic territory, perhaps. As far as the, the question of making it so we get rid of evil, <laughs> yeah, great. If you can do that, then, then well, that would be, or at least increasing empathy or something like that, if there were some sort of neural mechanism. But increasing empathy could also be problematic because that could lead to depression. I think that that was that we're afraid of if we tweak it, we're looking for something to improve it, but we have Mm -hmm. no idea if in the long run that we're going to create a new problem. We don't have no idea, right? We've got some idea, and what you're saying is we need to study, we move a little something, and we got to wait maybe a generation even to see what happens. That's right. So it wouldn't be radical. You'd want to move towards... I mean, if, if someone really doesn't have empathy at all, then they don't need radical empathy. They just need some empathy. <laughs> <laughs> they just need to stop being such an asshole. And presumably that would be that would be a sort of a treatment model, and you'd try to pull that off, and things would be better. This is an interesting question, though, because it's also implying that the human being is pure material. So uh, there's a part of me, when I think about something like designer babies, that mm-hmm. we're treating babies almost like a Pinterest cake. Like, you just put these ingredients together, and then mm-hmm. that's what comes out. Mm-hmm. So one of the assumptions is that if you put these ingredients together, then mm-hmm. that's what you get. But the human being is not like a cake. So right. that's... We're a really complicated well, cake. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> you know well, I mean? Like, the variables are so beyond... Well, that's what I mean. Like, with empathy, right. empathy could be something that is enhanced over time with you know, different reading skills and things mm-hmm. like that, that there's ways to increase somebody's empathy. So somebody who has a lack of empathy, right. it could be more than a physical trait. It could be a lack of exercising that skill. And then that's right. why it's not there. Okay. So with the genetic engineering, when it goes outside of the realm of health and we're talking about these other things, it seems to be that we're ignoring these other things that make us human, which is the mm-hmm. the relationship with the environment. I don't know if there's... There is a soul. Because <laughs> it takes out the Are you looking at me soul. Yeah, there is a soul. There yeah, is a soul. She's not looking at me. <laughs> yeah. right. I can answer that question yeah. definitively. What is the philosopher's response to this idea of playing God when it comes to genetic engineering? Well, the idea of playing God, of course, has a religious basis. And I think that 
people who are bioethicists or something, people who who'd be focused on these sorts of issues as to whether treatment or enhancement is a good idea for us to just mess around with the genetics at all, right? If that's what playing God involves, mm -hmm. they would probably, the bioethicist would want to bring it to more particular cases where the analogies between this sort of treatment and other sorts of treatment are much clearer. So it's like, well, look, we're doing the kind of thing in a sense that we've been doing for a long time. You know, you're not, you're not wanting to tell me that we shouldn't treat people. So what we're doing is treating it in this just much more efficient, effective way because it gets with genetic disease to the heart of the matter immediately, right? In effect, you can do this through generations by if there's a really harmful allele that expresses itself, you know, in terms of a serious disease, then that might take itself out of the gene pool quickly if there aren't reasons that it actually also benefits at the same time. So you look for precedent. Uh, yeah, you, you look to, to say that we've done stuff like this for a long time. So playing God, it's not clear where you draw that line. As much as possible, you not want to talk about it in this widest way thinking that what you're doing is transforming a human being into something, what, different? Non-human, right? Post-human? Yeah, I mean, right? There are arguments that suggest, you know, we're cyborgs already. <laughs> so that thinking that there's the sharp line that we're, we've yet to cross with respect to CRISPR or something isn't really true. There isn't a sharp line at all, and it may be that we crossed it with technology long, long, long time ago. Back when Mendel started splicing fruit or... Uh, right. You know, I, I have a, a question. May I? Mm-hmm. Of course. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because I think it's natural and intriguing to explore the ways that the technology feels threatening to a more conservative description of man's place in the cosmos. Right. But what's interesting to me is how much the more progressive side of our culture is threatened by this technology. And I didn't, because the, the context that I first heard of genetic engineering was the uproar against genetically modified food. And, mm -hmm. and the left are much bigger champions of, of that cause, you know, that idea that, I don't know, that, that it's somehow an affront to organic food or, you know, and yet we've been mm -hmm. providing huge humanitarian services in, I think, sub-Saharan Africa and other places India. where India... Yeah. In, in fact, it's an Indian woman who's kind of the most famous, uh, I can't remember her name now, but who's sort of stood up against genetic engineered food and Monsanto and all this stuff. And mm -hmm. it's interesting. There are threats to both the left and the right in this technology. And, and mm -hmm. I've, I'm, more, I'm more conscious of it from the left. Maybe that's because I'm an L.A. resident. And I throw a rock and you're going to hit someone who's got an issue with genetically modified food. But I'm curious... <laughs> what your take is in terms of how many of those issues get airtime in the scientific community and in the, the, the CRISPR circle. When talking about CRISPR, it's generally speaking a focus on human beings. And okay. it's assumed that like plants and animals, of course we use it with those, <laughs> those oh. sorts of things. So it's already a foregone conclusion that we've moved past that discussion. Yeah. Okay. I mean, is it oh, a lot of, 
a lot of the research as to how CRISPR can be used apparently has been on like mice. It's an interesting ethical question as to whether it's wrong to be using the sorts of techniques on mice that we wouldn't use on human beings, right? Mm -hmm. There can be a justification, I suppose, in terms of the benefit for human beings in the long term. But then there are a lot of people that would take animals to have their own value that shouldn't be messed with just for our benefit. I think it's, you know, ethics in general around these issues is a real mess. There are so many different things to consider. With respect to GMOs, yeah, of course. That's something that should get connected, but often isn't. When talking about CRISPR and the, and the babies that were designed by Dr. Her, designed in this one way, generally GMOs is not part of that discussion at the same time. But it could be that the same kinds of techniques are, are used, actually. And I, as far as the, the right goes, it's certainly the case that changing genomes would seem to go against a kind of traditionalist view of things are the way you know they should be so right. messing with them is not a good idea on the left what is causing that i don't know but i suspect it's a mix of suspicion against large corporations that use these sorts of techniques for their profits and then when monsanto or something says that they are complying with all regulations they're they're being very safe and so forth there's a certain amount of uh, skepticism that they're speaking the complete truth. Understandably. Understandably. Yeah. And uh, also a kind of sense of, well, you know, whatever organic means. Okay. I think yeah. it's when you said nature, this return to nature, it almost seems as though we swap out nature and good as though they... Interchangeable. The same thing. Yeah. Like, that, that's the assumption. But actually, right. we live in a terribly unnatural way. You have to pay to or get Or a wonderfully into unnatural. <laughs> well, yeah, wonderfully. I mean, it's like, no, exactly. If you want to have, like... You want to go camping and have like a natural, you know, experience holiday. You still have to pay for that, for yeah. that to all be, all be possible. But right. I mean, medicine. I mean, we're in California. This is air conditioned. You yeah. Know, nothing. I think natural is what I mean. The thing that you see as natural is how people define it. Yeah. Uh, it it's such a fluid term, and it and it applies when people want it to, and when it mm -hmm. feels comfortable, and. But I mean, yeah, but then when someone wants to use uh, an antibiotic or needs a life change, right. you know, suddenly that doesn't pertain. You're talking about, and, and that, that was kind of my question is I feel like the left and the right both define natural in, the, in different yeah. ways. You know, we all understand natural to be what is familiar to us. And it's easy to get to a point where what's natural or unconstrained in nature is obviously not what we want because right. infectious diseases wiped out you know, a large proportion of people for a long time. And now that it doesn't happen, at least in places where you have access to medicines. And we're not willing to be, well, you know, we're not willing to forego naturalness. Having said all that, I just realized that Santa Monica does have access to medication, but they are contracting infectious disease because they're refusing to uh -huh, uh, right. immunize their children in parts of Western L.A. Great. Right. So, yeah. So, <laughs> but I mean, that to them, I mean, so it, it's true. So sometimes it goes, you know, the, the commitment to that idea of what you think natural is right. can supersede your health right. or well-being of your family. Yeah. So thinking about sort of like what is ideal for me and my family and what does that encompass as far as drugs right, or whatever society has to offer? You know, to some degree, I suppose, a rebelling against what other people take to be ideal. And that all seems fair within constraints of, well, okay, so long as 
that's not the reason that there's you know a new break outbreak of uh, measles that affects a lot of people. But yeah, natural is not a clear concept. Well, I think. Do you have any more questions? I do. You do. Okay. Am, am I allowed to ask more? I suppose. <laughs> what does philosophy of the mind mean? So, like I started out saying, there's metaphysics. Did you turn it off? Is no. this off the record? Yeah, no, okay. we're still going. All right. I won't cut so you off. So it's off the watch <laughs> what I'm saying. Your wise questions. <laughs> I want to hear the wise answer. Well, let's see. Um, so when I, I started off talking about the metaphysics and epistemology, or so the epistemology is a method of how you get to know about something, and metaphysics is the nature of what it is. So that works perfectly with philosophy of mind because it is of particular focus for both knowing and its nature. We assume that we know our own minds better than we know other people's minds, right? I, I do. But I know a lot of people who are super codependent that think they know my mind as well as their own. That's not directed at my wife. That seemed... Whoops. Well, it's an interesting psychological question as to how well you really do know your own mind. Because you assume you know why. Because you're, you're just like there to receive the information. I suppose, I mean, you have more data to go on. But then what you make of it might be self-biased in various sorts of ways. So there may be a way in which your wife really does know you better than I, there There <laughs> undoubtedly are. Um, she knows when I need to go to an AA meeting. That's true. But there's this radical difference between knowing one's own mind and knowing other people's, in, just in terms of the methods. The way you get to know your own mind is you introspect. You just think, apparently, and sort of witness what you're thinking. The way you know other people's minds is through this indirect method. The interesting question is, you know, if the assumption is, well, then, given that difference, you know yourself a lot better than other people, but that doesn't necessarily play out. Hmm. So that's an interesting problem as far as knowledge of the mind. And then the nature of the mind is like one of the classic problems of a very long time, at least. That is, whether it's physical or non-physical. So that sort of begins with Descartes, and or? yeah, though it was I think sort of assumed that mind was uh, not physical as soon as there was some idea of physical contrasted with, and that was you know as the concept of physical was developing more clearly in like the scientific revolution era, mind was something that you could think of as a counterpart that wasn't like the physical. It was mm -hmm. some it was different. Mind as opposed to brain in that Mind as situation. opposed to brain, because the okay. brain is physical, right? right? There's just no question that it has weight. It's, I mean, if you ever go to the grocery store, they have animal brains. It looks like that. And it, so there's, you know, it's fully it physical space. and actually pretty right, messy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It pretty messy. It occupies space, whereas the mind doesn't occupy space. Right. Yeah, the mind, the mind seems like it's much harder to pin down. Right, intuitively, it seems hard to figure out whether it even makes sense to say that it occupies space. Does philosophy of mind begin somewhere in the annals of philosophical or intellectual history, that phrase or that idea? It does, as uh, ph philosophical areas became more specialized in the 20th century. Okay. Philosophy of mind sort of broke off from issues in, say, metaphysics and became its own area because it was growing so tremendously. So just another question, so we yeah. see if I can pin it down. Were they influenced by discoveries in the, with, relating to the brain, or were they two separate tracks that were happening where you had an increasing body of knowledge based on neurological stuff, and then you also had this area of philosophical inquiry re relating to the, this sort of concept of the mind? So traditionally, 
the mind was something that you couldn't study like uh, you could study material things. Okay. So it replaced the soul almost in religious study. Yeah. So the way Descartes, uh, the person who was a, a really important figure to start thinking about the nature of the mind in the 1600s? Yes. Yes. Descartes used the word mind, at least in translations that I've seen, as opposed to soul, because at least the way he put it in the translations, the soul is a sort of more intuitive concept that hadn't yet been cleaned up and clarified for Descartes' purposes to distinguish mind and body, or mind and matter. Mind, in his view, is more of a technical term that he was developing and, and sharply describing its differences between mind and, and matter mm-hmm. for theoretical purposes. The mind was something that thought. It was something that... it yes. was That was the active for the Cartesian yes. system. Right. It, right, okay. His mind was something that thought that could represent the world and was conscious. Right. Matter was something that they couldn't think, didn't have properties like representing the world and was not conscious. And then the other side, as Wendland brought up, was that matter takes up space, like the brain takes up space, but the mind supposedly didn't. So sharply different kinds of substances, mind and matter. So that way of thinking about the sharp difference was challenged really forcefully by the middle of the 20th century. I mean, it might have been challenged in various ways over centuries, but there was an onslaught by the middle of the 20th century where it was clear that it had fallen apart, that in, at least in philosophy, this was no longer the standard view. It still might be the standard view in other areas of thought, like in religion or just an ordinary non-theoretical thought. But in philosophy, the materialistic view of the mind became more dominant. And who were the champions of that? Who were the real anti-Cartesians in that way? Some like Gilbert Ryle, and Wittgenstein are a couple of people that were arguing against this sort of dualistic view of the mind. I mean, it was coming from all different sides, from all different kinds of considerations. And it wasn't so much that it was anti-religious. It was, I believe, that people really wanted to understand how the mind works. And it's hard to develop a research project on something that you can't study, like you can study matter. Mm Mm-hmm. In order to go forward in terms of understanding the way the mind works, just, you know, like how do mental illnesses develop and what explains learning and and memory and and dreaming and so forth. In order to make progress on that kind of thing, it seems like, well, if there's study of the brain that helps, then let's get on with it. But all the study of the brain did the opposite. It seems to prove that the mind, as we call it, is influenced by physical factors. I mean, all the neurological study in the 20th century and 21st century seems to bear out that if you mess that gray matter, the mind, the cognitive thing, doesn't work as well. That's right. So this is uh, something that's in favor, though not a knockdown argument, but it's in favor of the materialist view. Right. Right? It can still be sort of handled if you're a Cartesian, uh-huh. but that kind of thing is, is moving the optimism along to think that, well, you know, studying the brain and studying the way the mind works more abstractly, like what explains thinking? Is it a, a causal series of events, each of which involves some sort of representation 
there's inference that allows you to get to an end state where you come up with some conclusion. I mean, you can take the simplest example, something like just mathematical computation or something. So just, you know, what computers do. And the computer model becomes really crucial for thinking about the way the mind works because computer models have, you know, rules for dealing with representations of like numbers and it all seems to work mechanically and so it's hard to see how human mentality fits into that narrow mold but it, it sounded like a really great start I think to people it's like well okay if we can figure out math and logical thinking which you can do with computers at least certain logical thinking then um, we've got some of the best stuff that human the human mind do. can do anyhow, yeah. so we can just go from there and solve all problems. I think that initial optimism about understanding the nature of the mind in terms of material operations then ran into all kinds of obstacles where, of course, we're still trying to figure out how there could be artificial general intelligence because that's just too hard of a thing for computers to do right now. They seem to be going that direction. Yeah, but you, when you hear the predictions about, well, when are we going to get there? And right. When it comes to particular tasks, it's like, oh, you know, I mean, that could be pretty soon. But with artificial general intelligence, people say, well, I mean, centuries? They, yeah. they can be really optimistic when it turns to that. But it's hard to say, obviously, because, mm. yeah, we don't even know really what it is that we're trying to Mimic. <laughs> right. How we manage to be the way we are. You can have sort of very brute force attempts of just, well, let's just recreate a, a brain and it should be able to do it, right? But that's really super brute force. With AI, what we're, what we're really looking at is an expression of the way we believe ourselves to be. Mm-hmm. That's what the, that's what the robots are, and even yeah. all of their fallibility, mm-hmm. like you know, any horror stories about them taking over the world, no, or, I know. Like, the greed and all that stuff. Yeah, that's what a human really would do. Just, but... yeah. <laughs> it's just a representation of, of, of us. us. So it doesn't mean that we understand the brain. We're it's just representing how much we think we understand of our brain. Yeah. Well, even what you were saying a minute ago, which is that when we realize, well, a computer can do logic. Mm-hmm. And that's some of the best stuff that humans mm. do. It's a, clearly it's a self-selecting thing that philosophers would come up with. Well, if it could do logic, exactly, where it, with completely <laughs> exactly. obliterating certain creative and emotional things that the brain does. That exactly, some yeah. people would argue are the best parts of the brain. Yeah. Oh, definitely. In the computer science people and so forth. Yeah, mathematics is it. Right. Yeah, that's it. We got it. We can we can fold up shop. We'll now. figure yeah. out yeah. creativity and that kind of stuff <laughs> later. Right. Right. That reminds me when you look at like a history of man and you see you know tools of you know homo sapien that they use they always say describe man as a tool maker and that's like the logic yeah. but what they look over is there's art drawn on these tools right you know like that's also part of the expression of what Definitely. it means to be human but everybody focuses on man as the tool maker right, right. yeah that's so much a part of our supremacy i think it attracts it feels I mean, it's consistent with that idea of our, whatever makes us dominant is what defines us in some ways as a species. And well, one, one way of thinking of AI is that it's an instrument for understanding ourselves better, at least in theoretical circles of like cognitive science or philosophy of mind. It does so. If we can figure out how to make progress in AI, it's going to go back and forth between understanding how to produce AI and understanding ourselves this can sort of snowball. I think that's, at least for someone involved in philosophy of mind, that's really interesting to try to 
figure ourselves out and how we fit into the universe is kind of like the most interesting goal. So if there are aspects of us that are mental aspects that don't seem to fit in to the universe in any particularly comfortable way, right? They seem... That aren't explicable by... That aren't explicable by the other stuff in the universe. Right. So it's unique. It's complete. And of course, human beings seem, you know, we feel we're unique. There's no question about it. But on the other hand, what exactly does that mean? And we could be unique in, in ways that are material. There's, there's no real problem with that. We're more complicated, right? We're unique in that way. But getting to the bottom of that kind of thing is sort of really the interesting goal. Okay. Thanks for Thank you so yeah. much for talking oh. about genetic engineering. Yeah. AI. Squeeze a little AI in there. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A little, it's always good to squeeze a little AI. Always. Yeah? <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, Thanks. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review or some stars or go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. Thank you.